Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 155, The High Ground. Welcome into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Ken Ray. Each week on Mission Log, we watch an episode of Star Trek, examining it for meanings, morals, messages, and seeing whether all of that and the production itself stand the test of time. We also do trivia. We have a few laughs. So join us, won't you? That was very congenial of you. Well, well, thank you. I'm, I'm trying to be as welcoming as I can to our <laughs> new and old listeners, Ken. That's very nice. Uh, this week, by the way, we should tell people what we're doing. Uh, we are taking the high ground. Or are we? Now we'll try to decide that in a bit. First, though, we want to let you know how you can get in touch with us. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. Uh, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love that. You can call us, 323-522-5641. That number again, 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. If you got a little trivia you'd like to shoot our way, well, that is the kind of thing that John Champion does. He'd probably love to hear that. In the meantime, here's the trivia he's already got. All right, Ken. Today's episode, The High Ground, was written by Melinda M. Snodgrass, uh, she who we know pretty well by now. Um, her original story for this episode would have been something quite different, more of a parallel to the American Revolution, but pressure from her producers led to reframing this story as a closer parallel to the situation in contemporary Ireland. Now, it was directed by Gabrielle Beaumont. We've talked about how Beaumont was the first woman to earn a directing credit on Star Trek, and we talked about her interesting and varied career as a director and producer. As a slight parallel to today's show, she directed an episode of Miami Vice called Heroes of the Revolution, which takes place mostly in flashback about revolutionary-era Cuba. Now, we've talked about how a handful of episodes may have been banned in various countries due to certain content. This is one of those episodes. In it, Data makes reference to the Irish reunification of 2024, and hence, it was banned in the UK and Ireland until 2006 when it aired on Sky One, but with Data's line cut. It finally did air in full in 2007 on BBC Two. Now, let's talk about the guest stars in today's show. Uh, Christopher Pettiet as the boy. Christopher was a child actor. Some of his very first credits being this episode, as well as Doogie Howser, M.D., L.A. Law, and then the feature film Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. He was a regular on the short-lived Western series, The Young Writers, and he returned to a few guest star roles after that. Very sadly, he died from a drug overdose at the age of 24. Now, Mark Buckland played the waiter, and what we're seeing here is actually Buckland's very last credited performance as an actor, but don't feel bad for Mark. He went on to become a very successful director and producer on such shows as Murder One, Scrubs, My Name is Earl, and many more. In fact, Buckland picked up an Emmy and a DGA award for his work on My Name is Earl. Now, Richard Cox plays Finn. Mr. Cox started pretty young in the business. His parents were both professional dancers, and he started performing at age eight. 
spent a lot of time in live theater, then moved over to TV and film in the 70s. And he appeared on too many shows to get into here, but to name a few, Sanford and Son, Eight is Enough, Magnum P.I., L.A. Law, The X-Files. More recently, he has appeared on The Mentalist and CIS Los Angeles, and he has a recurring role on the political comedy Alpha House. And I got to tie us back into, uh, I got to tie us back actually into the original series with, oh, really? uh, with Mr. Cox. Yeah, because he's one of those guys that you see him, you're like, oh, he's been in everything, and yet mm-hmm. I can't name a single thing he was in. Right, right. And so I went to IMDb, and what do mm-hmm. I see up there? Uh, he actually did, uh, apparently he had a role on The Guiding Light. And uh, who had okay. a role in The Guiding Light? Mike, Michael had... Zaslow. The Zaz. Oh, who was, who the was a, Zaz. The guy who we thought was eating stuff off the ground in, yeah. uh, in The Man Trap. You're a big fan of The Zaz. I'm a big fan of The Zaz. And I'm a yeah. big fan of The Man Trap, you know, and that being yeah. the, the first aired episode of Star Trek. Yeah. Uh, not the first one produced, but the first aired right. episode of Star Trek. Uh, yeah, we can we can, we can draw a line straight from season three, episode twelve, <laughs> all the way back to original series, uh, episode one. That's very cool. That's kind of fun. All right, and finally, Carrie Keene as Alexana. Keene is another steady working actor who has made a career from mostly guest roles on TV shows, X Files again, JAG, recurring role on Beverly Hills 90210. She's been on Castle, Seventh Heaven, and CIS and a recurring role on The Young and the Restless. She is also the founder of the White Buffalo Theater Company here in Los Angeles, which, as of this recording, is on a break, but they have a, a wealth, uh, a huge background of performances to their credit. And a and, uh, funny story about her and Michael Zaslow. <laughs> I can find absolutely no correlation between the I'm, two. I'm cutting you off. I'm cutting you off enough of the Zaz. Hooray. Another light-hearted, whimsical, almost fluffy episode of Star Trek. John, tell us all about it. Prologue. The Enterprise crew are just doing what they do, delivering medical supplies, bringing peace and help, and a little of that Federation love where it's needed. And boy, is it needed here. Fruity of four, where the local government has been taking a beating from the Ansada Separatist group. Right on cue... A bomb explodes near where Dr. Crusher and Worf are having lunch. The doctor jumps into action, tending to the wounded, and defies Picard's orders to beam back up to the safety of the Enterprise. A local security team shows up, led by Alexana Devos. But before the area can be secured, another Ansada separatist appears, and a flash of light kills one of the security crew and disappears just as quickly with Dr. Crusher. Act 1. The Ansada who appeared and disappeared with Dr. Crusher didn't use a conventional transporter, which makes him and the missing doctor very hard to track. Data and Riker and everyone else will keep working on that. You know who else will work on that? Wesley. It would be no good to beam him down to the surface, but it might do him some good to work on tracking how the terrorists can beam in without a transporter. Tough position to be in, but Troy and Picard assure him that the Ansada are likely keeping his mother safe. Alexana then tells Picard and Riker that the Separatists are animals. She has no idea what they'll do to Beverly, but she does offer up a piece of technology they took from a dead terrorist, something that might help them crack whatever transporter method they're using. She also asks for weapons, and Picard politely declines. Meanwhile, Beverly meets Carol Finn, the leader of these rebels. He's walking a line somewhere between tough, scary, and charming, creepy. She's not having it either way. She's also not eating, doing her own version of peaceful protest. 
that Finn insists that she's only hurting herself. He interrogates her about what the Federation is doing there. They must be in cahoots with the Rutian government, but she insists that they are only bringing medical supplies. He knows he's the one causing all the pain and need for medical care. When he starts to get tough, Beverly gets scared. She has a son on the Enterprise, but Finn assures the doctor he won't kill her. Act 2. Beverly asks Finn if she can beam down some supplies from the Enterprise to tend to his wounded. Again, she insists they have no political horse in this race. He says no, but he motions for a young boy to bring over, what's this? Federation medical supplies? They have people everywhere, and they were able to snag some of what the Enterprise was bringing to Rutia 4. Riker is trying to learn whatever he can from Alexana. She has a database of information on the Ansada and the people who are sympathizers. The story goes that 70 years ago, the Rutian government on the Western Hemisphere denied independence for the Ansada, and the battle has waged ever since. Alexana has seen the worst of it, including the bombings that have killed children. Beverly has been doing her job, and she reveals to Finn that his people are dying on a cellular level. He knows what's going on. Their transporter isn't exactly a transporter. It's what they call an inverter, and that device moves them interdimensionally to get them to where they want to go. Finn doesn't really seem to care that it's happening to him, too. If he dies, he'll probably become more powerful as a martyr to their cause. On the Enterprise, Wesley, Data, and Geordi LaForge have learned, well, basically they've learned what I just told you that Beverly learned. Interdimensional transport, folded space, slowly killing them, yada, yada, yada. Riker is getting more of the tour from Alexana. She tells him that her predecessor was murdered. She's the kinder, gentler replacement. She has resolved to wipe out the threat of terrorism, even if it means arresting children. Beverly catches Finn doing something creative. He likes to draw when he's not plotting attacks, or maybe he is plotting attacks. He can just do both things at once. She gets worked up about his casual attitude toward killing. Then he gives her a history lesson. She's from the area where George Washington fought for independence, just like Finn is now. And she schools Finn that he is killing innocent people, not the same thing Washington was doing. Then Finn calls her out. She's living the comfortable life because other people fought before her, killed and died for freedoms that she now enjoys. He's willing to do the same thing. Act 3. Back to the interrogations. Alexana is bringing in everyone she can, including the waiter who is at the cafe where Beverly and Worf were enjoying lunch until things got explody. Riker is fed up with the theatrics. He tells the waiter to pass along a message. The Federation is willing to talk, to hear terms, if it will help them get their doctor back. And with that, the suspect is free to go. Data has made progress, too. He's finding a way to track the interdimensional shifts the Ansada make, but he's confused about their motivation. Picard explains that even though they abhor violence, sometimes violent uprising is successful, even necessary. There is no easy answer. The waiter makes his way back to the Ansada cave where Beverly is being held. He tells Finn what happened to him, and Finn starts filling in the blanks with his own version of the story. The Federation must be concocting these arrests to force them to release Beverly. She says that's probably not what's happening. But he is ready to proceed with his own plan, to blow up the Enterprise, which means everyone will have to listen to the Ansada demands. She begs him not to. Her son is on board. He's not moved, though. His own son died in routine detention when he was only 13. The attack begins immediately. 
and SATA terrorists use their dimensional transporter to invade the Enterprise, disabling crew members with ease. One places a bomb on the warp core, which Geordi is just able to remove and transport far enough away to not cause any damage. As a backup, Finn himself and one of his fellow rebels transport directly to the bridge. In the fight that ensues, Worf is hit with an Ansada phaser, and Finn manages to transport away with Captain Picard after a fistfight. Picard finds himself in the same cave where Beverly is prisoner. Act 4. Picard tells Beverly everything he knows. There was an attack. Wesley is okay as far as he knows. They're getting closer to being able to track the terrorists, mostly thanks to his hard work. Then Beverly starts kind of defending Finn. She says he might be mad or he might just be committed to his just cause. Picard is pretty sure it's the former and not the latter. Finn is okay with the outcome. He welcomes the attention of Federation involvement now. He explains to Picard that the value in Federation involvement is that the Routian government will have to start listening to the demands of the terrorists because now the Federation will force it. Finn makes an appearance of a different kind now. He transports back to the Enterprise, but this time just to confront Deanna Troy. He explains what he wants. The Federation will embargo any support of the Routian government and blockade anyone else from attempting to do so. That will remain in place until a negotiation can be set up. The captain and Dr. Crusher will remain safe if the demands are met. They have 12 hours to comply. While all that was happening, Wesley got what he needed. He can now track where the interdimensional transport is occurring, and that leads the bridge crew to find the caves where the Ansara are holed up. A rescue party is assembled. Act 5. Beverly is back to seriously disliking Finn's tactics. He announces that he may have to kill Picard. She lashes out at him for controlling through fear, a cheap weapon if there ever was one. When she walks away, he stops her by revealing what he's been working on. Pencil drawings of her, just like one of his French girls. She's confused, but then she's a doctor, not an art critic. The rescue party is beamed in and stealthily goes to work, silently knocking out a few guards here and there. Beverly, unaware of what's about to happen, finds Picard in mid-thought about an escape plan. She reveals to him that she has at least in some way won Fenn's trust. That may be useful, but because the situation is so dire, she really feels that right now is the time to reveal something very personal to her captain... Too bad we won't get to hear it. Then things get a little chaotic when the rescue party knocks out the generators in the cave, disorienting the Ansada for a moment. Fights ensue, and Finn sees the opportunity. He grabs a weapon and approaches Picard, ready to pull the trigger. But before he can, Alexana steps in from the shadows and opens fire, killing Finn at the last minute. Riker sees what happened and admonishes Alexana. She explains that captured alive, he might be a target in prison. Dead, he may be a martyr, but the attacks may stop, at least for a little while. That same little boy who helped Dr. Crusher with the medical supplies earlier now enters holding a formidable weapon of his own, trained on Alexana. Then Dr. Crusher puts on her mom voice that Wesley must have heard a hundred times, no more killing. Sure, that boy could have killed Alexana, but Riker sees the bright side. That's one boy who, for now, put down his gun. Beverly and Wesley share a warm reunion on the bridge until Picard is like, seriously, I would really like to get out of here. The end. I'm going to concentrate on something that's not important at all. 
I think we have to. Yeah, because <laughs> there's going to be important stuff. Love the effect of transporting with the inverter, and I love, um, I love the uh, uh, the planet uh, Rutia. I love the Rutian um, lasers because they're like lasers. <laughs> <laughs> Although it's interesting, they called them phasers. Did they really? Uh, Alexana, Alexana calls it a phaser, and I was really surprised mm. by that because it didn't feel like one. It no, didn't seem, it didn't yeah. phase you; it lased you. Yeah, no, right. it was like I mean, it was like something you'd see in Star Wars. And mm-hmm. here's the mm-hmm. thing: I don't want to do the whole Star Wars, Star Trek, whatever. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I get turned on sometimes by by weaponry that's that's different, or by or by effects that are different. Oh yeah, like the course. whole like yeah. you know the whole inverter thing was just fascinating. It's just like a well, I mean, it is a tear in the fabric of space and time. That's what they're doing. They're traveling right. interdimensionally, um, which is which is a mind blowing thing to sort of think about. But what it really looks like is like. Somebody ripped off the wallpaper of existence and let you jump through the wall and then jump out someplace else. It was yeah. kind of it was kind of awesome. I like the effects. I guess that's what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah. And, and then they do it, and then they get a nosebleed, <laughs> and, and worse. You know. And then Jung Big Boote comes and says, "Hey, stop that!" Right. That's a it's another dimension joke. Doctor Crusher has some uh, interesting conversations with Finn, and there was one where I wondered if this is really good defense of what's going on. He, he basically <laughs> says, "You know, you're an idealist," and she says, "I live in an ideal culture," oh. which kind of helps explain why she can be an idealist. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, okay then. Well, my bad. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. <laughs> I didn't realize that you. Li- oh, you live on the high ground. See, I'm just trying to get to the high ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to which I say, you know, in the '70s you could be an idealist. In the '80s, it's too expensive, and that's that's just a little uh, a, a little uh, pop culture nugget for somebody to find. Um, <laughs> now, one thing you can't argue with is Dr. Crusher's logic because yeah. he, he's complaining about, you know, oh, when we, when we jump through the interdimensional transport, it's killing us. And, and she's like, oh, oh, it hurts when you do that thing. Don't do the thing. Oh, but, you know, he's going to go, I'm going to do the thing. Yes. Yeah. What's his yeah. name again? Finn? Yeah. I want that picture now. We got the picture of Kirk and Spock doing that. Right. And Don't that do the thing. I'm Finn. going to do the thing. Right. I want one of Beverly and Finn. Don't do the thing. <laughs> I'm going to do the thing. Exactly. And die. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, I got to say, I, I went back and forth on his portrayal. Sometimes he was a little too hangdog. Sometimes he was a little too, I don't know. He he was, he was you, you said earlier that, um, uh, what's her name? Alexana was the kinder, mm-hmm. gentler authoritarian in this. Oh, right. He's right. the kinder, gentler terrorist, right? He is. Because yeah. he's, he's fairly nice. He's fairly sweet. He's like, oh, this is a bad way to meet people, isn't it? And please eat something. It hurts me that you won't eat something. Yeah. And then one at one point, Beverly says, you know, he's talking about the fact that they brought they brought supplies, they brought you know medical stuff to to the to the bad guys or the good guys, depending on which side you're on. Right. And Beverly says people were hurt, and Finn says, I know, I hurt them. Yeah. And so we're like, oh, uh, that's right. He is he's the heavy, right. or or is he? He he is a force to be reckoned with. He is something with which to be dealt. He is someone with whom to be taken seriously, not just the love struck puppy that he looked like half the time he was with Beverly. Right. Well, see, I mean, I kind of get the impression that everything he's doing is right out of the terrorist playbook. You know, we can talk about the the (laughs) Stockholm Syndrome that she has. But, you know, every single thing that he does is a piece of manipulation. (sighs) So that that uh, flipping back and forth between, you know, I'm going to help you, I'm going to hurt you. I'm I'm charming and friendly, but I'm also cold and callous. And, you know, all of that stuff. See, I don't oh. know if we're going to come back to that stuff or not. I'm not 100% certain that he was just being cold and calculating. I understand what mm-hmm. you're saying, but I don't even know that she suffers from the Stockholm Syndrome, honestly. Well, and I'm not saying that he can't be both, 
but everything that he does, he uses to his advantage. You know? Well, I don't, that you're assuming, you're assuming then that he's a bad guy and, and should we save this for, I don't know if we get back into this in the next segment or not, honestly, because I don't know that our notes automatically lead to it, except I don't know that our notes can't lead to it. Yeah, well, you're making yeah. statements about him that I'm not sure I agree with. Put another way, and I guess this is going to come up later, would you say the same thing about George Washington or Ben Franklin? He was charming, he was disarming, and he was affiliated with the terrorist organization back in 1763 to 1776. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well. <laughs> and we don't think of him that way. We think, oh, God, he was smart, and he was funny, he was erudite, and we still quote him today. And and nobody's going to do that with with Mr. Finn, of course, because he's you know stuff on the cave floor now. What's that? Yeah, I, I, like like I say, we're gonna we're gonna end up coming sure. back to it. So sure, sure, sure. Got oh, a little heavy for this agree. segment, didn't we? Yeah, I tell you something we can't agree on. <laughs> What's that? We love seeing Picard take a leap and a punch at Finn. Yeah, nice, right? Yeah, it was totally and, cool and when he did which, that. Why why was Microbrain back there so slow with the uptake? What are you talking about? I mean, Worf is, he is the first in line to grab a phaser and just start shooting. Yeah, well, he was a little surprised. Anyway, well, that, that's not like him. That's <laughs> what I'm saying. Yeah. Had to happen. I, I, I quite like Beverly in this episode. I, mean, I don't think there are huge challenges for her uh, as, as a character, as, as an actor. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but she is right on the mark with what is required of the performance. And there are nice moments without dialogue. Just, yes, you know, giving a look. Or... Her her best moments are, I think, without dialogue or almost without dialogue, because the dialogue honestly is a little too earnest. It's a little <laughs> too. I mean, we we use this phrase a lot. It's a little too on the nose. Yeah. yeah. Um. But when when she finds out that Fen plans to blow up the Enterprise, she tears up. And I don't know if it's just that she's more comfortable with the character now or if it's better direction or whatever, but we've almost never seen that from her, I don't think. I mean, again, it's interesting, too, that, that one of her best scenes now before that was the one in The in the Departed, right? Oh, yeah. The Departed, when when she and Wes are, are having their moment and, yeah. and she goes over and is practically crying and hugs him just to, you know, keep him quiet because she can't deal yeah, that's that's yeah. that's kind of interesting. Yeah, the look between uh, Picard and Crusher as well. Mm-hmm. When uh, when Picard ends up uh, um, a, a prisoner of Finn's down in the cave, they both have like it, it was a great look, and it was only yeah. a look. But I mean, there's there's not quite a smile, but there's definitely there's definitely a warmth and a, and a, and a gratitude um, mm-hmm. uh, expressed by both of them, without you know. Without heaving bosom, without you know, breaking into a big grin, right? Without, right. I mean, without anything, it's uh, yeah. it's kind of it's kind of great. Yeah. How about the thing with Irish unification in twenty twenty four? I mean, I, I can see how this would be touchy, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know, I um, I, I wonder if part of the context of it being. Uh, understood that this is a uh, a bloody and violent upheaval that has to continue before there is reunification if that's the part that is so distasteful to those who would ban it in the UK who did ban it in the UK probably yeah <laughs> yeah I mean it, Next you know, question. I'm, no, I'm, okay. I, yeah, I'm I, saying, look, I'm, I was. I don't know what it's like today, but I mean, I yeah. know that when I was in um, Boston in the late '80s, early '90s, it, mm-hmm. I could still walk around Charlestown mm-hmm. and see IRA graffiti. We're we're much further removed from daily violence 
um, in, in, in the conflicts uh, between um, – and I know nothing about all of it. I apologize. My, my knowledge of, of, of the fight between um, um, uh, the IRA and the British government or the UK government is, is next to nil. But I do know that it's not nearly as violent as it was when we were much younger, and and we were certainly a lot closer in 1990 when this episode aired. So I could yeah. see, you know, saying, mm. <laughs> "Well, we yeah, we certainly hear considerably less of it now yes. than we did in the 80s." I, I remember hearing a lot about it in the 80s, and you know, that's just sort of my my own ignorance now of what exactly the situation is. <laughs> I'm woefully, yeah. I am woefully yeah. ignorant to the point that I kind of want to edit this part out. <laughs> I'll leave the part where I say I'm woefully ignorant. I am. Wo- In fact, we'll start the show that way. <laughs> um, well, all right. And then we I think we have to talk about Riker's, um, you know, really powerful message. You didn't have to kill him. I'm sorry. I was just taking a sip of coffee. and I nearly spit it all over my computer. <laughs> I didn't think you were going there yet. Yeah. You know, I wanted I wanted somebody to go. Yeah. Oh, what's this on your communicator? But oh, is that is that blood of Utah? Yeah. Is that what that is? And I know well, we talked about wash out. There yeah. is no Riker. I know that was that episode. And so we yeah. kind of have to be forgiving when Riker gets all high and mighty in this episode and says, you didn't have to kill him. Uh-huh. We kind of have to forgive that because I was so willing to let him be bendy in that episode. Mm-hmm. It still might have been good to have somebody else deliver that line. <laughs> right Now, maybe that episode hadn't aired yet when this episode was produced. And maybe Melinda M. Snodgrass and uh, well, certainly it hadn't aired when she wrote it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Or, or the director whose name I forgot uh, Beaumont. Uh, Gabriel Beaumont yeah, yeah maybe Ms. Beaumont had not seen it yeah <laughs> but somebody probably should have said hey remember that time Riker killed that woman for no reason <laughs> <laughs> maybe he shouldn't call somebody else out for killing a guy for no reason yeah give that line to Picard maybe it takes <laughs> on a little different meaning then, oh you, know? you see giving it to Picard would have been cool although Picard yeah. already had the best line of the show I think um, which was so you know the things they, so Beverly is under, like, really gets the fact that they may die now, or at least he may die. Right. (laughs) And so whatever happens, she wants him to know something. Jean-Luc, there are some things I want want to tell you in case we don't get out of this. And then the lights go down, and Picard is like, oh, is that the sweet sound of death come to release me from this conversation? I mean, have they found us? I I, I don't think he actually said those words. I don't think he actually said those words, no. But I mean, boy, there was not even a second of, what were you saying, Beverly? (laughs) It was more like a, oh, wow, distraction. In this segment, Ken gets a little worked up. See if you can tell when. It's weird to me that this episode follows so closely on uh, The Hunted. Mm-hmm. I'm used to a little, you know, on again, off again, as far as your, you know, your politics or your, or your, your governmental questions, things like that. Do you know what I mean? It's not usually yeah. just one big government thing after another big government thing. Although, then again season one and season two of next gen it wasn't usually anything (laughs) it's like hey that was a good episode oh that was a bad episode so you know there was something that i kept meaning to bring up last week though and i forgot to because last week's discussion was so um full Mm -hmm. federation keeps siding with authority uh, without question or or keeps siding with the established authority without question that picard is aware of the plight of the separatists he actually says it in the in the captain's log 
like in the beginning he's like yeah terrorists because they wanted they wanted to be independent and they're not and so now everything's on lockdown nobody can go down there and have fun and everybody has to carry a phaser right but he's bringing medical supplies to the established government mm-hmm. um there are two sides to this conflict and whether you agree with the other side or not theoretically we're not involved in the conflict at all but we are going to help one side stay healthy which is yeah. kind of weird um, it reminded me of Kirk's uh, palling around with the Frank Gorshin character and Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. Two guys show up at the Enterprise, and one's like, uh, I'm running from a guy. And the other guy's like, I'm government, and I'm chasing that guy. And so Kirk is having dinner with the Frank Gorshin character, the guy who was theoretically from the government of this planet that nobody's ever heard of, right? Sure. And uh, the other character, whose name I can't even begin to remember, is sort of it's below deck. Commissioner Beale and, and Lokai. Well, okay, good for you. There you go. John gets five points for this episode. So, <laughs> so Loki, meantime, is below decks, like talking to the rabble, you know, talking to the talking to the red shirts, talking to the people who don't have captains' uh, bars upon ours. Right. And um, it, it's just interesting to me that they always, you know, sort of seem to jump that way. Uh, Picard assumed that Prime Minister Nayrock in uh, in the Hunted was in the right against Rogadenar. Um, mm-hmm. Now, at least you know the Enterprise doesn't help hunt the Ansada. Or, you know, give give weapons to the Rutian government to hunt the Ansada. But it's still just sort of interesting to me that, that we show up and we're like, we're not going to take sides. So who's got the most toys? Oh, you've got the most toys? Okay, we're going to give you whatever you need. Because we're not thinking about what's actually happening here. We just want to help. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it, it's still implicit support. I mean, at the very least, you know, you, by giving them medical supplies, you heal one of their soldiers to go back out to the front line. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, Finn yeah. makes the case pretty well. You, you know, you're not involved, or you say you're not involved, um, you know, but you're just supplying one side, which just happens to be crushing, you know, the other side, which just happens to be my side. Right. And right. and those again, since you were so fond of pointing that out earlier, are not actual words spoken by the character. But I mean, that's his point. His point is: look, you guys are you guys are neck deep in this because you're keeping them healthy, and uh, and and we've got a boot on our head. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, uh, well, you you said it. It's you know, Finn saying you've already cooperated just by coming here. So then, I, I wonder, you know, what do we make of that in terms of Starfleet's? You know, interference versus non-interference. Well, it it's not. It's sort of not a not a classic prime directive thing where we just completely stay out of it because they didn't contact us. We don't know them. We don't want to mess up their culture. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is. It, this is a political interference versus non-interference issue, and and we are involved every time we do business with places that don't have the best human rights records maybe or with governments that are in various stages of upheaval even if it's accidental (laughs) you become involved and and sway things one way or the other so but but then the the difficult moral question becomes well what is our obligation to the people who are oppressed or unheard in those places you know Mm -hmm. the enterprise is flying by and it's the routine government hailing them saying hey we've got people dying down here can you help us? Does the enterprise just stop and say, okay, send us some more information and we'll think about it. <laughs> you know? Well, I mean, ideally, I guess what the enterprise would do is start a private little war, right? <sighs> so they can, so they give, uh, they give supplies to the Rutian government and they give supplies to the, uh, and the separatists. And eventually they just get to keep fighting each other forever. 
I mean, well, the other thing that's weird about this, and we don't know much about, we don't know how long uh, uh, the Federation has been dealing with these people, but I mean, it is established that they have a long-standing trade agreement with mm-hmm. the Routian government. Mm-hmm. So this could go back to Kirk. This could go back to pre-Kirk. I mean, this yeah. could go back a long time. It's only 70 years that this has been happening, but it's kind of interesting then that you would just, well, that you would just keep dealing with them. So let's yeah, say 80, yeah. 90 years ago, there was no problem. And the Ansada decided 20 years into the dealings with the Federation, yeah, you know what we want to do is something else. And so do, mm-hmm. does the Ansada or do the Rutian government then just keep it quiet and hope the Federation doesn't find out? Or do they know that the Federation's not going to care? Because cause here's the other thing. They say they have a trade agreement. Is the trade agreement you give us stuff and we'll be happy? Or is the trade agreement <laughs> you give us stuff and we'll get something else? Because then you kind of have to wonder about why Starfleet or the Federation would look the other way on something like this. But that's now, now I'm, I'm totally making up another story that might be good for the follow-on novel. It, it's you give us stuff and we will give you access to our lovely outdoor cafes. <laughs> that's true. That's, the best coffee in the Routian system. Of course, there's uh-huh. only one inhabited planet in the Routian system, but still, <laughs> right. you're not going to find better coffee on Routia 3 nor 5. No. and Nor will you find people nor cafes. No. Um. I thought so. So here's the thing: we find out who we're dealing with in a way when um, Alexandra says these are not people we're dealing with here; they're animals, fanatics who uh, kill without remorse or conscience, who think of nothing, or who think nothing. Excuse me of, of uh, murdering innocent people. This episode does a great job of making the terrorists human mm-hmm. um, for Star Trek's target target audience. Uh, he's a soft-spoken guy. He's white. He's concerned for Beverly. Uh, he's an artist. He's taken with Beverly, um, and he's not a zealot in a way. He's he's for his cause, but he's not motivated. I was going to say he's not motivated by po- politics or religion. He's definitely not motivated by religion. Uh, he is motivated by politics, I suppose. But his politics are, I just you know, I just I just want to be me. I just want to be free. He wants freedom for his people. As Americans, we totally get that more today. It seems than in days past. Um, and I don't know why more today than in days past. Something somewhere is convincing a lot of people, as we record this today, that their freedoms are being impinged. Um, and please don't argue with me about whether they are or not, because that's not the part that I want to get into. I just want to <laughs> say that this is actually something that speaks to a lot of people yeah. on a lot of levels, would have in the early 90s when it came out, might even more so today, uh, except for the part, of course, where we end up being... On some level, I think we end up rooting for the terrorists in this, if you want to call them that. That's sort of like your retelling of Code of Honor um, without mm-hmm. the blatant racism. Mm-hmm. I wonder if uh, giving Finn a different accent or a darker skin tone or something like that. And granted, this was made to be more like the conflict in Ireland or around Ireland, which you and I have both confessed we completely don't understand. Yeah. But I wonder if you retold this story today and gave that guy sort of a different casting treatment, let's say. Yeah. Uh, is there any part of this episode that would be palatable uh, to viewers? I will say really quickly, though, I spent most of the time thinking that Devos, or Alexana, um, yeah. was a horrible person. And then she gets pretty humanized at this one point where, you know, she's like talking about rounding up kids and arresting people and all this stuff. And Riker says, is that what you want? And she says, I want to go home. I want this to be done. I'd like to be finished, but it's not. So I got to yeah. finish it so that I eventually can go home. I mean, it, they did not do as good a job, I don't think, of humanizing uh, the Routian government side. But once they do, I mean, I actually, I actually did end up buying it from her when she's practically crying about, I, 
I, I hate this. I hate this and I want it to stop. But it's yeah. not going to stop just by me stopping. So I got to keep doing what I'm doing. Well, see, here's the thing, though. I, I, I don't get the impression fully that, uh, yes, we have humanized uh, Finn, but I don't get the impression fully that he hates this. I, I get the impression that this is who he is now. Um, and, and yeah, things may have been different at some point, but he's younger than 70 as far as we know. This is the right. only thing that he knows. His motivation is political. He, he's not a religious fanatic, but he's yeah. certainly a political fanatic. And we actually don't know what they want because we don't know the details of the politics of this place. We know that they wanted freedom. They didn't get it. And now the Insada have been fighting for it. Right. But when he says we want a place at the table, we don't know what that entails. And maybe the Insada, maybe the Eastern Hemisphere were just horrible, <laughs> horrible to deal with. I mean, there's so little that we have to go on. And, and I get it that Star Trek does what Star Trek does, which is to at least try to give us some common ground to understand where that person is coming from, mm -hmm. who, who is just the enemy painted in big, bold strokes. Right. And I think we get that a little bit here, but um, I, I feel like both sides here are sort of, um, they're just sort of presented as archetypes, you know? Well, yes. Um, yeah, well, because they have to be, you know. <laughs> right, you have 48 minutes, and we want to tell yeah, a compelling yeah. story. I mean, I, I thought they actually did a good job of, like I say, humanizing both sides. You say you don't know that Finn hates this. He doesn't say out loud the words that he hates this, but, I mean, we do know that what he hates more is living under what he considers to be an unjust rule. I mean, sure, you say sure. this is about Ireland, but, I mean, you can certainly see some of the... You can certainly see some of the same things that you would have seen if this show had stayed um, Omega Glory 2, um, you know, a, a sort of a taxation without representation thing. I mean, he's saying what he wants is a place at the table. I mean, it's and, – and, you know, I guess this is how it ties – and uh, we should stop talking. We should stop talking because I don't know enough about – I don't know enough about the conflict that this was actually built around or rewritten to – I mean, we have certainly, though, uh, throughout uh, the UK history, there were there were uh, times when colonies were not heard, period, mm -hmm. because they were colonies. I mean, they were people who were part of an empire. They were people who were part of a government, part of an organization, whatever, but not an active part of it. They were uh, suppliers of things. They were they were markers of of, yeah. of how far the empire extended, right? Yeah. And the impression that we get. And yes, it's a very broad stroke thing, but you're doing the same thing I was doing a minute ago of trying to write the novel when what we've got is a TV show to work with. Sure. I mean, we're given to understand that these are people who want freedom. They're being denied freedom. They're not being talked to about why they should be, why they should have freedom or why the freedom is denied. And yeah, it, 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 it does make me want to dig deeper into it, except we don't have a deeper into which to dig. And yeah. so then we have to answer the question based on what's put in front of us, right? Well, it, I have a note here that I I, I kind of struggle with okay. because it, it, to me it almost seems kind of quaint that, that the fight that Finn has on his hands is one for equal representation. Because, you know, he, here we are kind of dancing around this idea of what we know or don't know about Irish, you know, the, the struggle in Ireland. And for, let's be clear, we know nothing. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> if we you and me personally, already, yeah. And, uh, but but the, this is when this episode was written. In today's world, 
Yeah. In recording this episode today in the early 21st century, terrorism is motivated by all kinds of ideological positions, but, but the seeming desired result is maybe not peaceful coexistence. Well, but I, I understand when somebody says the word terrorism today, it means something different than it did in 1987 or 89 or 90 when we were thinking about car bombs in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the thing that we see today is about destroying the enemy or supplanting one form of rule with another. And this honestly is where I part ways with the episode. And, and this is where I think I'm going to have a huge blind spot. And and maybe it's only because they were using the word terrorism throughout. And, right. and that word has a totally different connotation now. Well, you except know? except that Finn makes the point. He says, well, I've got the line someplace. What is it? The difference between terrorist and, and, and general is who wins. And that's not the exact line, but I can't find the, I can't well, find we're, we're, the exact the, line here. Yeah, the idea of history being written by the victorious. Yeah, well, yeah. that too, but no, he actually says a line in here someplace. Yeah. He he he, you know, calls Beverly out. And he's like, "So you're from um, America, right?" And she says, "North America." And he says, "I'm George Washington." And and this whole thing that we're talking about here, okay? Flash forward four hundred years. I'm George Washington. She says, "George Washington was a military general, not a terrorist." And he says, uh, "The difference between terrorist and general is." Um, I still don't have the line. I had all the rest of that. Um, is victory though? Basically, I mean, yes, as you say, uh, history is written by the uh, history is written by the victorious. Well, yeah, but but Beverly rightly calls him out and says that Washington was a military general. No, on he wasn't military, on a military campaign. No, he we, was not. He was only that because we won. Listen, if but Great they were Britain, bombing schools if Great Britain, full of British school children. <laughs> <laughs> they simply weren't. Well, they weren't in Great Britain, though, were they? Look, and that's fine. You can say that. And yes, I understand. You, I understand there, there are varying degrees of terror. But had the UK won, had Great Britain won the Revolutionary War instead of the US winning the Revolutionary War, then, then, then uh, George Washington would be remembered as a terrorist. He would be remembered as a bloody guy who killed how many of the king's loyal subjects? Benedict Arnold, by the way, is a jerk. He's an absolute jerk. But I'll bet if Great Britain had won, Benedict Arnold would be remembered as the hero who bested that traitorous villain, George Washington. I mean, look, what this whole episode is about is your side is not necessarily right just because it's your side. I mean, there are other things it's about, too. But that's one of the I mean, uh, boiling it all down and forgive me for skipping into the end. Mm hmm. Still don't kill. I mean, that really is what the whole thing's about. I mean, this whole thing really hinges on. Somebody's got to stop killing at some point. And good news, this little kid decided not to kill today. And so maybe we get to get, or you guys, you Rutians, get to get past this. But I mean, for you to, for you to say that George Washington was a military general and, and this other guy is a terrorist is just, I mean, it's, it's, it is proving the point that uh, history is written by the victors. Because we weren't an established military before we said, you know what, that's it. Screw this. We're going to be an established military now because we need to get together on what we're doing. That's the only difference. But had we lost, he could have been the leader of the largest terrorist organization that the uh, that the uh, British colonies on North America ever saw. Yeah, but by, by that time, the colonies had a provisional government. They had an army. They had <laughs> they they were still making their own rules. They were also making know? it up. Well, yeah. I mean, well, that, I mean, so, so but, what's but again, the difference? So, so, so then tell me what the difference is between that and what Finn was doing. 
And you say blowing up. You say blowing up school children. Yes, I understand that. But they say that yeah. that was an accident. They yeah, said well, that that was an accident, and they didn't believe that. And so, if you want to tell me that nobody innocent died at the hands of an American during the Revolutionary War, I'm not saying that nobody innocent died during oh, the Revolutionary no, War. No, I said at the hand, I said at the hands of an American. I, I, yeah. I, I'm, 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 I'm. Look, I'm not. I'm, I'm flabbergasted that, 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 that you can't see his parallel. I mean, do you, no, I mean, do you really I, think I he was do. full of crap when he said, I'm George Washington? No, no, no. I, I do see the parallel. Okay. I, I do, absolutely. Beverly also has a point. <laughs> I mean, she oh, yeah. absolutely does. Absolutely. You know, yes. The, this campaign that they're carrying out is something very different, you know, and, and we don't know what they have gone through up until that point. You know, how, how much of a redress of grievances have they attempted with the other government? How, what other steps have they gone through? You know, Picard's the guy who always says, okay, you tried to negotiate and the negotiations didn't go the way you wanted them to. Try again. Right. Do it again. Right. Did it 18 times, do it a 19th time. <laughs> you know? Yes. Uh, so, I, I guess that's true. As long as he never had some... I don't know, insurrection or something, <laughs> then that's absolutely true. Picard is always that guy, uh, you know, until the minute that he's not. It's actually kind of weird to me that he's so, well, whatever. I, I was going to say, <laughs> I, I, I wanted to talk about something that's related. Okay. That is Data's point to Picard. Yes. Because he's right. And, and there are many times in history when an armed infraction, violent revolution, okay, we can call it terrorism from whatever point of view you want to call it that, that it, that it has been successful. <laughs> is and it just, is it just to, as we sit here and record this, is it just how that word is used today that makes you so uncomfortable using it in any other circumstance? I think partly I, that may as like I said, that, that might be my blind spot, okay. but you know, um, but, uh, but Picard says, uh, okay, Picard is right that he, he still doesn't subscribe to the theory that political power comes in the barrel of a gun. Um, and then this episode maybe asks us the question, what if the shoe was on the other foot? Um, you mentioned the hunted mm -hmm. and I thought about the hunted as well, that there is a kind of moral ambiguity there around the idea that Danar and his men are using an armed incursion to make their point known. Mm -hmm. We and, and the Federation are saying we, we're implicitly on their side, given the reality of their situation but is it still right that it plays out with violence? You know, so so then we we come to this sort of question of when is it right to resort to violence to make one's voice heard? Martin Luther King subscribed to a strict practice of nonviolence. Did he succeed? Well, arguably, yes. There are many successes from his campaign. But did it take others who did use violence to help their movements succeed? You know, uh, Picard would weigh on the side of nonviolence but still he still he kind of sees the point and it, and he and i guess this is a cognitive dissonance that he and data well data maybe more maybe it's a more difficult road for him because he's an android yeah <laughs> you know? yeah there um, was we've actually there was a so we've beaten up on the enterprise crew over the past few episodes for not letting the computer do it mm -hmm. you know where it equals whatever outside the box thinking has to be done right yeah. Data actually makes the case for people and against logic in a lot of these situations, I think, by his inability mm -hmm. to understand um, using the inverter to achieve mm -hmm. a goal when the inverter will ultimately kill uh, the users. Right. Yeah. That's a leap that he can't make just as he can't make the leap for. Well, he does make the leap for violence, though. Um, 
I don't know. There seems to be a disdain coming from everyone for anyone who would fight such a seemingly insurmountable um, uh, foe as the Routian government. And it, and it seems to come especially from Picard. And this strikes me as odd because boy is Picard, boy does he love France, you know, mm-hmm. the land of his birth. Um, it should be noted he's not returning home to the rule of uh, Louis the Twenty Eighth, right? <laughs> right? Revolution is built into his history. Yeah. Um. <sighs> I don't know. It's it, it's just strange to me. He uses terms like irrational, and then he holds so tight to the rule of law. And, but he, I mean, and and again, what's his name? Um, Finn did Finn. say that your your federation is built on how many bombings and how many wars and how many innocent people have died, right? Yeah. Um, and yet, Picard is totally like you know. Data says you know these guys doing what they're doing. Uh, it's totally a rational act. Talking about using the inverter, and Picard says we may be dealing with an irrational people. Well, I think it was Times Squared that started off with Picard in the fencing match, right? Mm-hmm. And they and they repeated it, and that's why that's why mm-hmm. the line actually sticks with you. Um, he pulls a move, and his opponent says something to the effect of, "I'm not familiar with that technique. What is it?" And Picard replies, "The technique of a desperate man." <laughs> okay, yeah, right. so this is not completely irrational for Picard, or it shouldn't be anyway. Unless, well, it's okay in a game, but, you know, in real life, head down, eyes forward, do what you're told. The rational android, by the way, says terrorism works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I have to say, Picard's constant parry of Data's constant questions by saying, oh, you see, you're just so human. That's, <laughs> I'm getting tired of that. I mean, that's automatic. That's the end of the conversation. Every time Picard does that, Data has questions. I would really like it if Data had argued with him this time. Like, you know, I, I, you know, I really don't, I don't understand. You say violence is not the way, and I agree that violence is not the way, but so often violence is the way, and Picard's like, oh, that's just so human, and I wanted Data to go, yeah, 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 yeah we'll come back to that. that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Let's finish this conversation first, as opposed to, that's almost like a, it's almost like a safety that Dr. Sung built in. <laughs> like, yeah, just tell Data he's turning human, and he'll reboot. That's <laughs> <laughs> if you can't get to the little button in his, you know, in his side. Right. He's got a cognitive dissonance chip he has. <laughs> That's well, a funny idea. So Finn does say something to Crusher that, that puts just the whole Star Trek thing into question. Mm-hmm. You know, at least this version of the 24th century version of it. He says that she is living in the peaceful, ideal world she does because other people are willing to kill or die for certain ideals before her. Mm-hmm. And, and it's sort of... You know, you take that to logical extreme and you go, okay, well, is this perfect world of the 24th century just a lucky respite from war and strife until we hit the next one? (laughs) You know, until there is another armed insurgency, until there is someone else who is unhappy with their lot. Um, It's sort of... We keep giving the Enterprise a sort of like cool, detached, moralistic approach, mm-hmm. and and they get to walk away from this at the end. Boy, is it just a happy reunion, and oh, we're, we're back on our nice, sterile, clean, pretty bridge and get to go away <laughs> and right. set up cones and not come back to Rutia 4. Yeah. You know, um, there is something kind of uh, unpleasant about that. You know, we we have said, and, and we've seen in the end, we will see more of the idea that Earth's history is terrible and violent. And then at one point, it got so bad that it had to get better. 
Mm-hmm. And fortunately, they've been kind of coasting along for maybe a couple of hundred years by the time we get to this era of the 24th century. The things are okay. We wiped out a lot of problems and we're doing okay. But, but this throws into question, what about the next one? Well, it's not just about Earth's history either, though. I mean, you've got... I'm always envious of the people in the Federation. I'm always envious of people in uh, Earth on the 23rd century and 24th century because we had aliens. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? I mean, sure. we can't fathom on this planet right now that there is that we need to work together. Yeah, because I mean, I got to get it over on you, right? <laughs> the Russians got to get it over on the U.S. and and yeah. and Iran's got to get it over on Iraq, and you know we've got to get it over on the Middle East and vice versa, right? And there there are plenty of other you know, <laughs> I told this story on this show before. It's like my friend from West Newton getting beaten up in Watertown. And they, mm-hmm. they, they neighbor each other. They border each other. Those two cities border each other in the greater Boston metro. And, and one of them's got to beat up the other one because you're from there and I'm from here. Uh, the Watchmen, we were under the impression in the comic book, The Watchmen, that there were aliens. And suddenly when there were aliens, we on Earth kind of had to pull it together. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Star Trek, it's a little bit better because we have aliens who say, yeah, you know, we've done this fighting thing. And, and it's really much cooler when you don't. <laughs> let, right. let me show you what a holodeck is like. Let me, let me show you yeah, what, right. what real warp drive is like. Because it's cute what you know, Prime Minister Nayrock built for you guys. <laughs> I'm sorry, what Zephram Cochran built for you guys. But, but let me show you what a real warp drive looks like. And, yeah. uh, and let me take you to this other planet where they got green women. I mean, seriously, the, mm-hmm. the universe is going to be great once you guys stop screwing around. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and unfortunately, we don't have that. Right now, we just yeah, kind of have to yeah. believe that, you know, we need to stop screwing around because the universe might be great. Yeah, well, maybe for my grandkids, grandkids, but 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 not for you. <laughs> so <laughs> head down, eyes forward, do what you're told. Um, there was one other thing that needs to be addressed, I think. The um, the the list of, of Ansada sympathizers. Yeah. A- as cool and as great as, you know, kinder, gentler. Alexandra or Alex, I can't remember Alexana. how to pronounce it. Alexandra, yeah. as cool as, as she is now, um, there are maybe 200 active Ansada, she says, mm-hmm. but they got a list of 5,000 people that they're willing to round up because these people think <laughs> mm-hmm. along mm-hmm. those lines or are friendly with those people or, or may actually be giving them medical supplies and maybe giving them weapons too. Okay, that's fair. But this whole like uh, down to arresting children. Um, it just, it, hmm. yeah, it paints a nastier. Ugly. It paints a nastier picture of the Rutian government for sure. Yeah. Oh, sure. by the way, here it is at the very end of all of my notes. The difference between generals and terrorists, doctor, is only the difference between winners and losers. When you're called a general, uh, so said Mister Finn. One crime in this episode was not addressed. I do not think that Beverly paid for her lunch. Let us hope the guys talk about that. All right, Ken, many difficult things to talk about in this episode, particularly because we admit how unprepared we were about certain geopolitics, but still many important issues to discuss here. But before we get into the final summation of what it's about, I want you to tell me if you think this episode holds up. Do you mean production-wise or message-wise? 
I mean, production-wise first. Production-wise, um, yeah, I think so. I mean, you're always going to get a little bit of uh, cheesiness around costumes when you're talking about the 90s, mm-hmm. unless somebody's gone way over the top. I didn't like the pants, honestly, on the routine government people. <laughs> I didn't like the pants. Um, I'm also a little confused by why every male has sort of the off-to-the-side skunk stripe. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved the the phasers, lasers, whatever carried by the Rutians, both the Ansada and the Rutian government, and I love the uh, I love the um, the inverter. I like the touch of like the artwork. I like the acting between uh, Crusher and Picard. I didn't think the writing was as strong dialogue wise as it could have been, but I think the writing, as far as story wise or as ideas presented, um, was great. I feel really unprepared about the Ireland thing, but I didn't know until you did trivia that this mm-hmm. was based on that because it's not part of my history. And I was able to look at it and look at, you know, any number of uh, things in history. So, I mean, it's, I, I both feel ignorant because I am, but it's also not inherent. I don't think, except maybe the guy's name is Finn. It's yeah, not well, inherent in it that we're talking about uh, a conflict in the UK and Ireland, you know, that's, or, or a political conflict, at the very least, that was going on then, and 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 you know, has has reverberations even today. But let's be clear here that 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 was an inspirational background. I mean, like I said, the original would have been more closely a parallel to the American Revolution. Right. This said, well, okay, we'll we'll kind of take this slice out of what's happening in Ireland, but th- this is not about a specific thing right. going on there. Okay. So. We, we can cut ourselves some slack on that. You know? Good. I, I yeah. still may go back and edit all of that out then. <laughs> Except it would be very, very difficult to do at this point. Um, so production-wise, yeah, I think, it, I, I think it holds up. What about you? Kind of. I, I mean, it, it depends on what you think the episode is, is trying to do here. So action. Whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. Are we talking about are we talking about meaning or are we talking about production? Well, because I assume I'm, you're okay. talking about like you know, it's like filming and costume and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, okay. I'm 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 getting there, but I I think some of the 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 writing maybe helps or hurts. Okay. So right. so let's say you know for action, yes, there's some good action in this episode. Yeah, we we get to see things blow up and and it's paced nicely. Um, good performances, mm-hmm. yes. You know, I think there are some very good performances here. Um, but I, I think that at the end of it, I kind of asked myself, well, well, what were they trying to accomplish by this episode? So it's it, it's shot pretty well. It, it, it's, it's done pretty nicely. But then by the time you get to the end of it, did it? Did it really give you something to ponder? Is it the kind of thing that when I watched it again and again, did I feel like, oh, I'm getting more out of this episode? And I feel like by the time you get to the end of the episode, what you're just getting to is a kill the bad guy episode. Um, so that's where I think the episode doesn't hold up. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll discuss in detail what I think those notes are about the message and where that works or fails. But but I, I think that's the problem with the episode just taken as an episode. Um, if we are talking about parallels of of terrorism, okay, yeah, Star Trek can can do that certainly, um, and and I like the idea that we get to ponder the differences between terrorists and freedom fighters. You know, back back to this idea of history being written by the victors, um, but. 
in the end of it, I feel like what we accomplished was, like I said, killing the bad guy. And, and, and we're led to believe that this is probably, though not definitely, a good thing. Hmm. You know, what about that seat at the table that Finn wanted? What about whatever injustices, real or perceived, that his people have experienced? That's another interesting angle here. They have misunderstood and misperceived almost everything that's gone on. So that's the part that turns me off from the episode. Ultimately, there's no statement about terrorism or about the use of violence or nonviolence for political needs. And, and I feel like Star Trek isn't good. It doesn't make it good Star Trek just because it takes a contemporary problem and makes it sci-fi and puts it back on our faces. I feel like Star Trek is good when it can challenge us to look at a problem in a new way. And that's what I feel like this episode doesn't do. Hmm. So, so I am, I am conflating the two a little bit, but that is part of my problem about the episode, not holding up as an episode, as a production, because there are, there are episodes of Star Trek that I can go back and rewatch just because maybe a performance was so powerful or, or the message, um, or the, the, by the time you get to the end of it, that that ambiguity or that question that still lingers in your mind is so much more profound. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this one doesn't do it. It becomes very by rote by the time you get to the end of it. Hmm. I, I, I disagree. Okay. Fair I don't, enough. I don't remember what your take was on um, A Private Little War. I don't remember whether you thought it held up or not, but I loved A Private Little War because it was a writer... I can't remember if A Private Little War was Gene or not, but it was a writer. I believe it was Gene Roddenberry. That was a Gene Roddenberry story, wasn't it? Uh, it was his story, yeah. Okay. What I liked about A Private Little War was it was a writer sitting there going, I I don't know. Yeah. And that's what I felt like this episode was as well. I don't feel like this was a kill the bad guy episode. That is what happened. But I don't feel like that was meant to be seen as a solution. I don't know that that was meant to be seen as a good thing. The only victory in this episode, I think, is when the kid doesn't shoot um, her, Alexana. That, to me, is the only victory, that, that maybe that's a change. In sort of a mirror-mirror kind of way, just think about not doing this in sort of a, um, a taste of Armageddon sort of way we choose not to kill today. Mm-hmm. I mean, in all of those ways, that's that's maybe the only victory here. I like the fact that you have a terrorist who is obviously a terrorist who says, look, if I win, I'm not a terrorist. I'm a freedom fighter. If I lose, I'm a terrorist. If I win, I'm this. I'm not just whatever you're painting me as. And so for me, it did like raise more serious questions, and I'm okay with it not answering the questions. The one thing that I do regret, Kirk was obviously disgusted at the end of of uh, at the end of a private little war, he mm-hmm. obviously hated what he decided they had to do, and what they had to do was arm the other people just enough so that they could live in stalemate. Because otherwise, somebody was going to be wiped out entirely, and he hated that. That's where they were right at that moment. But that's where they were right at that moment. Like you, I hate the fact that they have the nice, cheerful reunion at the end, and the sort of like, okay, if you're done hugging your mom, we'd like to leave now. <laughs> because yeah, what yeah. they've left them to is who knows what. Obviously, the Federation is officially still not going to get involved, and there's absolutely no reason to think that now Alexana is going to go, oh, well, that kid didn't kill me. Maybe it will be worth talking to the Ansada now. 
Right. I mean, there's absolutely no reason. They got 5,000, they got a list of 5,000 people and their leader's dead. Now is actually an excellent time to wipe them out. And maybe mm-hmm. that's what happens. Maybe that's not what happens. Or maybe somebody on the inside actually starts uh, supplying the inside of more. We have no idea. And yeah. I'm okay with Star Trek not taking a position. I'm a little bit bothered that, that the Enterprise didn't take a position. The Enterprise's position was, eat my dust. I can't get out of here fast enough. Thank you very much for not killing my people. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'll let you get back to maybe killing each other. That part was kind of a drag, but it did leave me. I feel like all through our episode covering this episode, I've sounded like I'm on the Ansada side. And I don't know that I'm on the Ansada side. I think I was only, I think I only ended up there sort of defensively because it sounded like, it sounded like you saw no place for them because they were just, quote, terrorist. I, I feel like, but I, but I feel like that's kind of the failing of this episode. Like, yes, we humanize Finn, yeah. the the person, right. a little bit here. But And I'm perfectly fine with moral ambiguity, and I'm perfectly okay with, with uh, an ending that isn't neatly wrapped up. You know, I, I think Star Trek can be very powerful when it does that. But, you know, here's the thing. Um, it was a far more interesting message to me when Star Trek gave us lessons like war is stupid, then I think uh, just a message of violence is bad. It, it's bad. So put down the gun, you know, that may be too subtle a difference, but to me, I think it's kind of profound because when Star Trek told us war is stupid or racism is stupid, look at this spiral mm-hmm. that, that happens and, and look at really where it's coming from. That's when you have an episode that you actually get to ponder over and over and over again. This is an episode that just again, it, it, it's Beverly putting on the mom voice. Now put down the gun. Hmm. See, I disagree. I mean, here's the thing: you have just in the past few weeks, I can't remember which episode it was exactly, but just in the past few weeks, you've applauded Star Trek for humanizing the enemy. I mean, the mm-hmm. problem is there is no enemy in this episode. I mean, we we humanize the bad guys. And we humanize the good guys. And what we realize when we do that is there are no good guys and bad guys. There are two sides of this. And and how they get out of it is a really good question. (laughs) And not one that Star Star Trek is prepared to answer. They do fall back to their standard answer, which is, let's not kill, let's talk. Right. But But, but but even in in doing that, I mean, but they do that by way of George Washington, who would have been more than happy, I assume, to to have to have you know sent the Declaration of Independence and have the UK go ah oh, you know what that sounds good I think he would have been better off he would have been happier probably not having to kill anybody for it but when it comes to it then he felt like he had to so yes ultimately the message is no more killing except I mean the logical android stands there in the middle and goes yeah but sometimes you gotta right and Picard's like yeah I don't really like to think so and Data's like yeah but sometimes you do anyway don't you right I mean it's just it, it it's But that's what I was trying to say before. Like, yeah, Star Trek takes on big issues, and these are complicated, complex issues. Mm -hmm. I don't think they were particularly interestingly handled here because at the end of it, like I said, all right, well, we killed the bad guy. See ya. Um, And that's really what we're left with. When Star Trek does something like present a bad guy and absolutely humanize that bad guy and, and say, here's how you have to change your way of thinking that's when Star Trek, I think, is really good. And I think this one as an episode 
failed to do that. It got close. It, it did interesting things with Finn, but in the end, it doesn't add up for me. It, it's just sort of like, well, okay, we uh, we cleaned up the mess we got ourselves into. So um, good luck for the next 70 years. Yeah. And we'll see how you're doing then. Well, no, they'll be back sooner than that because they got to deliver more supplies to someone. To, yeah, continue <laughs> this mess. Yeah. yeah. We have a thing that we have to do as well, by the way. Okay. Uh, let people know, I think. Are we to that part that Mission Log is I produced by are. Roddenberry Entertainment? Okay, well then let's do that part. Do you want to do it this week? Because I've been doing I, it for the past several. I think you should do it. Really? Yeah. All right. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer Rod Roddenberry. You can find out more at roddenberry.com. All kinds of stuff there. Are you in a buy-in mood? I, I tend to talk about sort of like the you know the philanthropic stuff and the other project stuff. Do you want to buy something seriously Star Trek? <laughs> Check out the shop at roddenberry.com. Not joking around. Not joking about, around. About buying Star Trek stuff. No, yeah. there's, there's, they, they get a batleth. Yeah. You go down to your local comic book store and see if they have a batleth. And then see if they're selling them. And then right. say, you know who's got batleths? Roddenberry.com. Uh, for more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM. That is Trek.FM. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit TrekMovie.com. Next weekend, we are back with Deja Q. And next week, John, we're back with... Oh, somebody said that before, didn't they? Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. One thing confuses me. If there is no way to get to the Ansada hideout except through the inverter, how did they know there was a space to hide out there in the first place? And transmission. <laughs>